a number of years ago, a couple came to uh, ask if I would conduct their wedding. This couple that I appreciated very much. They were a young couple that I'd got to know at Adelaide University, so it's a long time ago. And um, uh, they were um, just a lovely couple. And um, one of the things as we got chatting, they said they'd like to write their own vows. So they said, you want to have a go at that and bring back what you've written next time and uh, with the little sessions that we had. And uh, so they brought them back in a couple of weeks and I looked at what they'd written. And then I looked at them and I said, you haven't promised anything. Uh, They'd said things, I can't remember the actual words, but it was along the line of we feel this way and this is how we look at how it's going to happen and so forth. But I said, you've actually promised nothing. So they had another look at their own composition and realised that they hadn't promised anything. And uh, so they went back to a form of the original vows. So it's interesting. I take you to be my lawful wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. So this, I, I give you this my solemn word or to those words to that effect. So... Um, it's interesting that, and this is numbers of decades ago, but it's interesting how the form of our language has changed from being definite to being vague. And, um, and what we're talking about in this series on God's life-giving promises relates very much to that. Um, so uh, marriage is, for example, to take the case that I've just raised, marriage, for example, is a stability that's created. Just ask the kids what, it's, what a family's supposed to be. Don't ask the parents, ask the kids, what's the family supposed to be? Well, it's supposed to be a place where you're at home, where things are stable, where you know what's up and what's down and where you can learn how to get on in life, the same as in any other species for that matter. Uh, how does a rabbit work out how to be a rabbit if it doesn't have a big rabbit? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just how it is, isn't it? <laughs> There's a period of nurture. Anyway... Uh, marriage is a stability, but it's based on a promise. That's as simple as that, isn't it? And as I say, and I, I have every reason to believe, I've actually seen it in, written in a non-Christian magazine as well, just, well, just a, an ordinary secular magazine, that the best thing that parents can ever do is to love their spouse. I absolutely believe that's true. Reason, I've got a theological reason for it. What's the stability you have in being a Christian? The father loves the son. The son loves the father. Jesus said, let's go to the cross that the world may know that I love the father. That's how solid your faith is, Christian. It's based on a steady relationship between the father and the son. Can't be broken. That's how sure our salvation is. Uh, And our families are meant to be a, a what do you call it, are meant to be a reflection of that not just a reflection of it, they're meant to be an embodiment of it that the children grow up in. So I repeat, the best thing that parents can ever do for their children is to love their spouse. Not just stay together, but... It's a very funny story, but I think it's by Malcolm Muggeridge. Somebody asked him one time, he said, have you ever thought of divorce? Divorce, he said, never. Murder, yes. (laughs) But I mean, there's something just... You're just not going to do it. And so it's there. And that's what the children need. So that's, um, pardon that little excursus on family life. I still feel it's very important. 
but all need stability. The world, whole world, you know, politicians are always making promises. They have to, we won't vote for them. And basically, we're looking for some fidelity that we can rely on. We don't just want promises, we want kept promises. Uh, and we don't just want core promises, we just want promises. <laughs> and so forth, so the, the world goes around like this. But, but basically, the world, we just need to have some stability in order to live. And uh, so we can find that stability in either of two ways. We can either base it on the world's resources and culture and ideology. If that's the, only, the world's all you've got, that's what you have to base it on. You have to base your stability on the world's resources, culture and ideology. And then what happens next? You fight. True? And it happens. Or you can base it on God's promise and you can rest. It's as basic as that. And it's as basic as me standing in front of you. I know any, any day, any moment of any day, I can rely on my own health. I can rely on my own resources. I can rely on my own wisdom. I can use what's seen or, and then by nature of the case, there's uncertainty. Or I can rely on God's promises. And then you can rest, and then you can be who you are. It's as basic as that. It's not just a nice little thing. There's a few extra promises thrown into the Bible so that when you're up and against it, you've got some place to go. Um, that's good enough to do, and I think we all do it regularly. We're in a hole. As uh, Vaclav Havel says, uh, when you're under a rock, you've got time to think. Being under a rock for him was being in a gulag or, or some kind of communist camp anyway. Uh, and um, so uh, he said, when you're under a rock, you've got time to think. So oftentimes we find ourselves under a rock and then we go to God's word and it comes to us. So based on God's promise, we can come to rest. Now we'll see some examples of that as we go through these studies. But first of all, the question, is the world safe? Uh, from earliest days of our human history, God has been making promises. It's not just something a Johnny come lately right from the beginning. Um, uh, God has been making promises. They are the certainties we need to know as we navigate our way through all that happens in this world. Somewhere there's got to be something that's sure. Uh, these plans, these uh, promises, tell us God's plan. Uh, just an, an analogy of a family. Mum and Dad say, we're going to go to the shops soon, we're going to do some shopping and it's going to take about an hour or two, but you just need to come along with us and that's that. And do you know when they set the certainties, they set the rules of where, where things are at. And so God tells us what his plan is and not only tells us what his plan is, but calls us to participate. So when you listen to the promises, you're not just getting comfort, you're getting direction. You know what he's got in his heart, what he's got in his mind, what he wants to achieve. And he doesn't want to do it by himself. He wants you and my, me involved. So uh, promises are the way in which we can be involved in what God's about. Um, it becomes impossible, of course, to make good decisions without some idea of where things are going to head. Possibility, and we've already talked about politicians, that the Bible proceeds on the basis of the promises that God made. I think you can say that God's always taken the initiative. He's never behind the eight ball. He's always got the next word. And so Adam's never in charge. Satan's never in charge. Nobody's ever else is ever in charge. God's always indicating what's going to happen next. Um, 
And you get the same thing when Jesus comes. Who's in charge in Pilate's court? Sure isn't Pilate. And it sure is Jesus. That's just how, you know, God's always taking the initiative. He's always out front. Um, so the Bible proceeds. That is the whole Bible, you can say. I think it was uh, somebody was talking to um, Jeffrey uh, years ago, uh, a theologian, and uh, Jeffrey was talking about the importance of covenants, and he said, yes, that's covenant's a very important part of the Old Testament. What about promise? And promise could possibly be a way of understanding the entire Old Testament. That was just a comment between a couple of theologians. Um, the Bible proceeds on the basis of promises that God makes. So Christians come to life. They become fruitful. Uh, you know, how do we get converted? Uh, Peter, think of Peter. Uh, and Jesus said to him, when you are converted, strengthen your brothers. Uh, what, was, what happened next? Well, he failed the Lord. But what had the Lord done? He had made a promise. He said, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you're converted, strengthen your brothers. He'd indicated what was going to happen before ever Peter did what he did. Uh, it's just so incredible, really. Um, so, and then he, and when he writes his letter, he talks about Christ um, and he says, um, through whom we become to a, a living hope. That is why, to those who are born anew. Just think of Peter's history. When was he born anew? Well, I think it's had something to do with the resurrection, wouldn't it? When you are born anew, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in his second letter, he says, we have received many great and precious promises that by these we might become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, so he's very aware of uh, Christ taking the initiative and not him. Uh, for Peter, who was always trying to be out front, uh, that was quite something. So um, Christians come to life, that's what I had in mind there. They become fruitful. There was a day when the Lord said to me, Grant, you're going to have a fruitful life. It was my first discovery of grace at the age of 18 because I'd contributed zero to that. It's out of the blue. It means a lot to me. Um, we'll become fruitful. I have ordained you that you bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Is that the story of your life? I'm sure it is. God's decided that. He's told you about it so you can enter into it. We become fruitful, we are sustained and we inherit eternal life all on the basis of God's promises. So God's promises may be viewed through the lens of God's covenants because Ephesians uh, 2 tells us that um, about the covenants of promise. He's talking about the Gentiles being strangers to the covenants of promise. And so he doesn't just say they're covenants, he says they're covenants of promise. And if you look at it, um, there's a covenant that God makes with Abram where God uh, says to Abram, you're going to have a child and we're going to look at that next week. Uh, and this child is going to be a blessing. Uh, you'll be a blessing in all the world and so forth. So the whole um, Jewish story, if I can put it that way, Israel's story comes because God promises that something is going to happen. So that's a covenant of promise. And then God comes to David and says, there's always going to be someone on your throne, David. And that meant a lot. Now we'll look at that the following week. Uh, the Davidic promise, 
Um, and then later on, uh, when God, Israel lives as though they have no promises at all that are guiding their life, they're just scrambling around amongst themselves, and their kings are too, uh, God says, you've broken my covenant. He said, but I'm going to make a new covenant. And that's the next week after that. We'll look at that one. Um, and so that's why I call them the covenants of promise. And uh, you say, why well, have I missed out the Mosaic covenant? Um, because as one theologian calls it, it's an administrative covenant. It administers the Abrahamic covenant. It doesn't introduce a new promise. It's the working out of um, what um, God had already uh, indicated. I think that can be sustained, but you can argue with that if you like. But I'm talking about the covenants of promise, the ones I'm taking are Abram, David and Israel, uh, given to Jeremiah. Um, And to these we may add the earlier promises that God has made to Adam. Some say that there's a creation covenant that was announced at Adam and certainly there's a covenant made with Noah. So we'll add add those two and then we're going to look at those today. So Jesus Christ fulfills these promises so that we have ever more reason to live in hope. Um, And that's what Paul says uh, in regard to, and I think it's just lovely to see these verses and how the theme of promise is picked up in the New Testament. Uh, Romans 15 and verse 8 tells us, I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. Gee, how so important that is. Just something that's real. It's, uh, you can, your whole, whole creation depends on it. Uh, on God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises made to the, pra- uh, made to the patriarchs. And, um, and then in verse 13 he goes and says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now there's our agenda. Uh, what, what are we about? That we would so listen to these promises and understand their framework uh, that, we would, um, that our whole life would become a reflection of the stability of God himself. Uh, and I don't think there's anything less that would be in order for us. Uh, for example, Psalm 85 and indicates that this sort of thing is what, what he got, God actually wants. It's an unusual psalm and it's a poem and so it's sometimes difficult to know what all of the words mean but I think the, the general impression of it is clear. Uh, psalm 85, 9 to 12. Uh, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. <clears throat> that glory may dwell <clears throat> in our land. That is, there's something coming down. That's God's salvation. That's clear, isn't it? Uh, his salvation is near to those who fear him, those, those who trust his promises, so that glory may dwell on it. What would that mean, glory may dwell on our land? Well, that would be people living in that faithfulness, wouldn't it? And this is um, how it works out in the subsequent verses, 85, verse um, now 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Whose is the steadfast love and the faithfulness? Well, it could be God's, it could be ours. But he's already indicated there's a coming down and there's a, a reflection of what goes on on the earth. So somehow or another it's not clear. But nonetheless, we have the picture. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. I think there's no reason why you can't say the steadfast love is God's. 
It's certainly characteristic of God's. And the faithfulness that we respond to. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Now it's clear that it's coming up from the ground here. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. God looks down and says, yeah, that's good. That's what I want. And yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, make us footsteps for his way. Um, You can see a picture there, a composite picture, if you like, of faithfulness, glory, steadfastness, uh, reliability, God giving what he's got to give, which is his promises, what he's going to do and then the fulfilling of them, and then us living in that. And so that's the way the world prospers. You want to know what to do? about any problem you like to mention in the world, listen to God's promises. Now let's see how that works out in these first promise that we actually are going to look at today, the promise made to Adam and to Eve. And this is why I say that from the beginning <clears throat> we've been uh, surrounded with God's promise. The first couple, of course, assert their independence from God and want to determine right and wrong for themselves, a great tragedy of our life and it hadn't stopped with Adam and Eve Um, ever had a problem with it yourself (laughs) well any hands up (laughs) first couple assert their independence want to determine right and wrong for themselves because of this God tells them they'll die just like that and since then we all die that's just how it is and not only so but we have that threat that is there. Life, by nature of the case, cannot be certain. That's it, from birth. And uh, some of us know that more accurately than others. Uh, Some of us can put us off uh, for decades, but eventually it catches up with us. We find out that life cannot be certain. Uh, We all die. And as Hebrews says, we live in the fear that this is the case, even if we're... hmm, you know, just strutting our stuff, uh, by nature of the case, the fear is still there. Um, And since then we all die, we must deal with the many threats and uncertainties along the way. Um, Immediately, God provides clothes. Interesting, isn't it? Because they're hiding. They're not ashamed. Um, Adam's not afraid that Eve will see him naked or Eve afraid that Adam will see her naked. They're afraid that God will see them naked. Um, we need to represent that, of course, in our decorum with one another. But fundamentally, clothes are to, uh, provided by God because God says, I can't change what's happened, but I still want you to be able to come to me. So I'm going to remove the reason, for the immediate reason for your shame. That is a great kindness, is it not? You can't listen to someone making promises if you don't feel comfortable in their presence. And from the beginning, it's just astonishing, the kindness of God to reach out to rampant rebels and clothe them doesn't wipe out what's happened, but it hides the shame that prevent them relating to him. And God promises that they'll have a child, what they call a proto-evangel, 
the the event, you know, the gospel before the gospel, the the beginning of the gospel, if you like, where God from the beginning says that all that Satan has introduced into his creation will be abolished. Not only so, it will be abolished by somebody that comes from Mary's womb. That's, that's amazing. God says, uh, and then what about this? Uh, the next thing is that uh, Adam calls his wife Eve. And somebody said, if you wanted to represent the Hebrew accurately in English, you'd have to say, your name is Livia, live. Because Eve is taken from the verb to live. And so the one who, if you like, has assisted in the introduction of death into the world is called by her husband who fell for what his wife's, uh, you know, went, went fell for as well. He calls his wife Livia or Eve, mother of all, because she'll be the mother of all living. It's interesting but for people who've been told they'll die, isn't it? Do you see the, the message has got through? Adam's listened to the promise. Will that be true? I think so. No sinner has ever lived in a world devoid of promise. No sinner from the beginning. As soon as sin entered the world, God had a promise. In other words, he didn't lose the initiative. He said, well, this is how it's going to work out now. Which, of course, how it was always going to work out because God knows everything from the beginning and plans it from the beginning. History is not chaotic but follows the line of what God has declared to be his future. As some uh, say, uh, history is his story. And that's uh, a proper way to think of it, because of promise. Because God never has had the initiative taken from him. Uh, someone we all know says, God never says, oops. It will come at a cost to the promised child. Uh, in a strange poetic way of speaking, uh, he will bruise, uh, you will bruise his head. Uh, he will bruise his head, but uh, he will bruise his heel. There's a disproportionate uh, end result, if we can put it that way. But there's going to be, uh, there's going to be difficulty. Um, and now prophets go on and celebrate that uh, as we can go on. And I don't think we need to look at those just at the moment. They'll come out later on, I think. And Jesus fulfills these things. So the, this proto-evangel, in other words, if you want to just look at those references later, you can. Uh, incidentally, it's Isaiah 65. That should be a colon, not a semicolon. Uh, verse 17 and verse 25. They're just little verses that indicate that the proto-evangel, those uh, Genesis 3.15, uh, about who's going to bruise whose heel and head is uh, picked up. Uh, Jesus says particularly, uh, said of Jesus, I mean, in 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which is a direct reference, if you like, back to Genesis 3:15. Um, not only so, but Paul can say in Romans 16, and God will soon bruise Satan under your heel. How about that? Not only does Christ destroy the works of the devil, but again, as always, God is always for sharing his victory with us, sharing the gaining of the victory with us. So he says, yeah, 
You'll share in the bruising of Satan. How about that? So the promise is quite profound, isn't it? Made to Adam and Eve. We can think this is just a quaint story. Or we can see it as the one chance we have to live a full life. And why do I say that? We'll just read the following chapters, you see. Pessimism, apathy and anger are ruled out. Um, I wrote a song one time about what goes on in the world. In all our history we've had authorities who failed to strive for true society where each man's worth was held, but sought instead to keep their rank and ride a narrow ledge between personal gain and pleasing all. Their judgment lies ahead. We hear the cries of discontent, of hate and jealousy from those who say life's given them no opportunity. Recognise that on the television? Uh, which means I've lost my place now. But it says, but we must search, the next verse says, but we must search until we find what our vocation is. For all of us are called to live for God. This world is his. The people who retreat from life are hostile to their God and welcome life's unfriendliness as a useful alibi. Now, I think we've just got to call out what's going on in the world and say the human race has no reason for pessimism. Not if we listen to God's promises. So what Satan's doing is not just causing people to do wrong things out in the streets. What Satan's done is messed with our relationship with God. So we're not confident about coming to him. If we were confident before God, we'd be able to go out and do, we'd have righteousness and peace, we'd kiss each other. Do you understand? It's a dynamic. A promise is dynamic in its effects. And this works out in these following chapters uh, that you, you can see. The story follows through in the book of Genesis, bears this story out. The people who believe God's promise, that's the line of Seth, find some poise and certainty and generosity in life. Let's just have a look at one or two of them. Uh, I think I can find them quickly here. Uh, Cain and Abel. Um, So here, Uh, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And uh, then they bring an offering and then, of course, we have the, the murder. I'm thinking particularly from chapter 5, uh, for 4.25. Adam knew his wife again, bore a son, called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. So now we've got Cain and we've got Seth. They're the two children, as, as far as we know, are alive. And we have those two lines spelled out for us. Well, here's the line um, of... Um, Uh, of Seth uh, in chapter 5 and in the line of Seth you have um, when Seth had lived 105 years he fathered Enosh and then it goes on a number of generations and then you have um, sorry I should have done this a little bit better I'm sorry chapter 4 is the line of Cain and in the line of Cain uh, you have Cain who is angry And then you have verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And they had children and Enoch was born. And then finally, after a few generations, you have Lamech. Lamech took two wives, which is different from what God wanted. Uh, And then later on, Lamech said, he was a very angry man, and he said to his two wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. That's what happens when you have no promise. Life becomes chaotic. 
You realise that Jesus turned that verse around. How many times shall I forgive my brother? He quotes Cain. Puts grace instead of anger. Why? Because he's fulfilling the promise. And then as we've, uh, you can go on the other side, in chapter 5 you have the story of, uh, of uh, Seth's line. And uh, verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, and Enoch walked with God after he'd fathered Methuselah. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, it means to listen to him, doesn't it? Listen to what he says and to believe what he says and so be comforted and so have something to contribute in life. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And then when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from the work and from our painful toil of our hands. Life tough, is it? What's going to sustain you? Or God's promise. And that's represented in Lamech. So that's why behind my little comment that I've just put here, um, in chapters 3 to 5 saying that um, those who believe God's promise find some poise and certainty and generosity in life but those who won't believe the promise the line of Cain feel threatened become angry, grasping and even cruel like Lamech and just open your papers and see the rest of the story the rest of the Bible is the story of this unfolding as we shall see but already God's promise changes how people live now, let's move over then to the story of Noah um, in chapters uh, 8 from 20 through to 9.17. We'll just have a... Um, it's a very well-known story, so we won't be tracing the story through. But by the time of Noah, the earth has become so violent that God promises to destroy it, except for Noah and his family. God will be gracious to him. Notice... Uh, that while it says that Noah is a righteous man, it says he received grace. Grace is what a sinner gets, isn't it? He received grace from the hands of the Lord. So his righteousness isn't what you call perfection, but it's just simply that he follows God. He must build what amounts to a floating zoo to house his family and many animals. The flood that then comes is so comprehensive that only those floating in the ark survive. Uh, the message of the scriptures, however this works out, I'm not in really interested in how it works out, you know, trying to sort out all the details of how much of the earth is covered or anything like this. But what the Bible makes clear is that God is starting with another couple. The fathers of the human race now are not Adam and Eve. They're Eve and his, uh, sorry, um, Noah and his wife. Because everybody else living has been drowned and these people in the ark. The story, Genesis 69, concludes with Noah saying thank you with a sacrificial offering. And this is what happens in this uh, 8, 21 to 22. God makes a promise. He says, I will never again strike down every creature as I have done. That's something, isn't it? God doesn't want us to be constantly fretful about the weather. Now, Read meaning into that, whatever you want. You see, God does not want us to be constantly fretful about the weather. You see the bow in the sky. God's made a promise. I'm not going to destroy humanity in the way that I've done it. Not only that, but he says this, seasons and harvest will continue as long as the earth remains, quite out of God's mouth. God said seasons and harvest will continue as long as the earth remains. 
This is a promise to all of us, all of Noah's descendants. God is establishing a relationship and actually a causes a covenant with the human race. Everybody, because everybody's descended from this is a new start for the human race. He will never again reduce the world to a single family with a flood like the one they've just had. This is what we are to remember when we see a rainbow in the sky, seasons and harvests. Now notice this. The difference it makes if you have a promise that the Creator will see to it, the harvest will continue. God tells us his reason for making this promise. Uh, it's fascinating. It's almost word for word the same as the reason for flooding the earth. I, because the heart of man is deceitfully wicked from his youth, I'm going to, dis- I'm going to, I'm going to um, send a flood on all the earth. And then God afterwards says, because the heart of man is deceitful from his youth, it's almost exactly the same words. I'm not going to do it anymore. Human beings haven't changed at all. But God has made a promise to us who are that kind of people. The intent, so that's it. Uh, it's a relationship of grace. Every human being alive in the world is subject to God's gracious dealings with the planet. Everybody. Everybody ought to know that. Everybody ought to count on that. Everybody ought to work hard because it's true. Everybody ought to solve the problems we've got on the planet, but not because we're in charge, but because God's made a promise about it. Can you see the extent of this promise? It's, it's worldwide. If this is what we believe, it makes a huge difference. Without it, we become threatened, anxious, angry and grasping. True? And even our Western nations, are our systems geared for the benefit of the world or to sustain our own preeminence? It's a fair question. It's not just the others that have got a problem. All of us can be grasping. Why do the rich get richer and the poor get poorer? It's a complaint all the time. Well, because we don't listen to the promise. Without it, we become threatened, anxious, angry, grasping and even cruel. But believing God's promise can make us trusting, settled and even generous. But we must work until we find what our vocation is. For all of us are called to live for God. This world is his. We are now responsible under Christ as Lord to fill the earth with useful works, his gospel to adorn. And this no longer seems too hard. For we have been made one with the Father and with all his saints and the kingdom of his Son. You see, it's a, it's a great life, isn't it? If you listen to the promise. And it needs to be how everybody in the world is actually living. We can tell the world what Paul says, and here's why I'm sure of what I'm saying, because Paul uses the Noahic promise when he's speaking to raw pagans in uh, Pisidian Antioch. He's just healed somebody. I think it's Pisidian Antioch. He's just healed somebody. And uh, they start to worship him, thinking he's Zeus and Hermes come down. He says, don't do this. And this is what he says. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. That's pure Noahic promise. No Jesus gospel there. That is pure Noahic promise. True? That's the way he preaches to Gentiles who are raw pagans. Now we are facing massive food shortages around the world. But in fact the world is producing more food than ever before. That's a comment from John Anderson. 
uh, a farmer, former um, Deputy um, Prime Minister of Australia, along with John Howard. We don't do very well distributing it evenly, but think of the difference it will make if we believe that God has promised never to destroy the means of production. Would it make a difference? Would it make a difference to the kind of business you ran? Would it make a difference to your business plan? Would it make a difference when the prices of petrol and vegetables are going up? It it makes a difference, doesn't it, if you believe that God has made a promise. It's not to say that everybody and nobody will go hungry. God is not promising that nobody will go hungry because we know they do. But he is saying that there's a basic promise about the whole planet that should influence the way we conduct our lives and our and our, our policies. And God has promised us this because he's kind and not for any other reason. Still, there's the promise of a child to come that God gave to Adam and Eve and this is where the next promises will take us. Let's just pray. Oh, our dear Father, what have you done uh, to us? We know what we've done and it's just horrific. But what have you done? to reach out to such a people as us and make such amazing promises that could sustain us and enable us to live with some decorum in this present evil world. And we thank you so much, our Father, that Satan will never, ever have the upper hand. And nor will we need to fear that somehow or other the planet will run down, not until Christ comes back. And so, our Father, we thank you that we have these promises and they help us to understand so many other promises in the Bible as well. And we ask that you will give to us that um, believing heart that looks up with gratefulness and um, not just uh, is inspired but becomes um, determined to live in the light of what you promised. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.